Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And today we're going to talk about what might be the most beautiful book in the world, the Book of Kells. Yeah, when my mom was in her teens traveling in Dublin, she made sure to visit the Book of Kells as often as she could because... Back then, they used to change the pages over every day or so, and you could see a new illumination and new text. And now they only turn the pages of the manuscripts every few months. But when I visited Dublin a little more than a year ago, I made sure to check in with the Book of Kells. And um, it's probably the most famous book in the world, maybe the most beautiful, and it's kept at Trinity College, which is right in the middle of Dublin. After taking a look at the famous campus arch, you can take a turn in the college's library, and there's a whole exhibit devoted to the book. Before getting a glimpse at its pages, the museum impresses upon its visitors the whole significance of this volume, you know, what the Book of Kells means and why it's so important, its age, the skill and time it took to make it, the scholarship surrounding it, and the miracle of it even surviving. And finally, you get to this packed room where two of the four manuscripts are displayed, and four manuscripts make up the whole. We don't want to give the impression they're different copies, um, but each manuscript represents a gospel. And one is turned to an illuminated page, and one to a page of script. And the writing is really shapely and clear, and the illumination is colorful and detailed, and so detailed, in fact, that you never could get quite a close enough view and long enough view in that big crowd of people to to see everything. But it's still amazing to look at something that's so intricate and so beautiful and more than 1,200 years old. So no wonder it's often considered Ireland's national treasure and attracts 500,000 visitors a year. So let's dive into the history of the book. Yeah, so the Book of Kells isn't just famous for its beauty and its skill of craftsmanship. It's shrouded in mystery, and there are all these misadventures. It's so amazing that we actually still have this book, and it's in as good a shape as it is. So for centuries, there's been arguments about where it originated, whether it was Ireland or Northern England or Scotland. But the most likely story starts way back in 561 or maybe 563. So in 561 or 563, the Irish Saint Columba, or Columkill, which means Dove of the Church, who was an Irish monk and scribe, fled Ireland and founded a monastery on Iona, an island off the west coast of Scotland. And this became a missionary center to people of Irish descent who were living in the area. Yeah, so they were there for a while. But in 806, a Viking raid on the island left 68 monks dead. So the Columban monks take off. They're not going to risk that happening again. And they moved to a new monastery at Kells in County Meath, which is northwest of Dublin. And the book was probably written close to 800 AD, but we can't quite guess if it was written completely at Iona, completely at Kells, or a mixture of both. Because, you know, after all, a book is pretty portable. You could bring it when you were fleeing to your new monastery. There's some other lesser accepted hypotheses, like one that says it was written in North England, maybe Lindisfarne, uh, the site of perhaps the second most famous illustrated manuscript of the period, um, brought to Iona and then Kells, or maybe right to Kells, or it was possibly made at an East Scottish monastery. That's the controversy, um, but we're going to go with that Iona to Kells story, I think. Um, life at Kells isn't easy for the 
beautiful manuscript either, though. It's The city is constantly being sacked by Danes and locals, uh, lots of Irish infighting. Uh, so it's really impressive that it survives this period, too, let alone its, its earlier days. Uh, we know for sure of its presence in Kells by 1006 or 1007. And Katie and I were saying it's so strange saying 1006. Yeah, you're going 1006. <laughs> And that's when the Annals of Ulster told that, quote, the great gospel of Columkill, the chief relic of the Western world, was wickedly stolen during the night on account of its wrought shrine. Two months and 20 days later, it was found under a sod, missing its gold and jewel-encrusted shrine and a few pages. But things still don't look up for the Book of Kells. Its existence is not easy in even the coming centuries, and it's defaced and damaged. And in the 12th century, charters concerning monastery business are copied onto its blank pages, which sounds so weird using the Book of Kells as scrap paper, essentially. It's so horrifying. I won't even dog ear a library book. It's, it's a common practice at the time, though, um, you know, when paper or vellum is rare. <laughs> and also in the 12th century, the monks lost the book due to ecclesiastical reform. The monastery at Kells ceased to exist, and the property passed on to the bishopric of Meath. So the book stayed in what was now the parish church. So it stayed in the same spot. It just was no longer under the monk's protection. Right. And in 1654, the Cromwellian cavalry quartered in the church. And this was bad news. Um, I'm sure that the people responsible for the book are concerned that the English will run off with it. So they send it to Dublin for safety. And after 1661, it's officially presented to Trinity College by Henry Jones, who goes on to become the Bishop of Meath after Restoration. And that's its home now. It, it has not gotten back to Kells, and we'll talk about that more later. But the last terrifying book crime we have to recount uh, was not at the hands of the Vikings or the English, but an 1821 bookbinder who cut off about half an inch of the outer margins of the book, including decorations. all sorts of, of priceless decorations. And that's just gone. I mean, you could imagine him sweeping it away. I'm still angry. It's pretty about tragic. This. It's rebound in 1895 by a more responsible binder. Um, it's getting kind of messed up after this binding, though. The pages that are displayed frequently are having pigment damage, and it's just getting soiled because it's touched so much. And our final binding we're going to mention is in 1953, when it's repaired and rebound by Roger Powell, who was a leading conservation bookbinder. And he puts it into the four volumes that we know today, which correspond to a gospel. And... Um, there we go. <laughs> so let's talk about the book itself. The Book of Kells is comprised of four Gospels in Latin based on a Vulgate text. The Vulgate edition was written by St. Jerome in 384 AD, and that is what ultimately became the definitive Latin version of the Bible. Yeah, and the English versions that we know are based in turn off of the Vulgate. It's interesting, though, this isn't necessarily... Um, about the Book of Kells, but a lot of the illuminated manuscripts at the time are not pure Vulgate. Um, many Irish-trained monks knew earlier translations of the Gospels and knew them, had, had them memorized, and they trusted their memories more than the model that they were given to copy. So there's sort of like free-form 
Gospels, I guess. The transformation of the Bible. The book was made at the height of Ireland's golden age, and it represented an enormous commitment of the monastery's time and resources. We've got a lot of gold involved, a lot of expensive pigments, and lots of monks. Yeah, just lots of manpower. A really time-intensive book. You cannot get the Book of Kells on your Kindle. And we have to also ask, what is it for? It's an oversized book, heavily ornamented. I mean, that cover originally was gold with jewels all over it. So it's not made for a private devotional. It's not what you retreat to your cell with and look over. It's probably something that would have been carried in ceremonial processions, like Easter, for example, and then placed on an altar facing out toward the congregation. And I think this is so interesting, but you have to think, of course, your average member of a congregation at this time would not know how to read, and they wouldn't even speak or understand Latin. They would speak Gaelic. So uh, I'd say that your average book would not have a lot of power over someone who was illiterate and spoke a different language. So therefore, you make this book that's so beautiful that it would have inspired anyone, illiterate or not, just with all of its colors and all of its symmetry. And lots of illustration, because the monks knew the biblical texts in and out. They filled these copies with meaning using things other than words. So instead, they use the symbolism of animals like lions and snakes and peacocks to represent, say, the resurrection. Uh, The host is depicted in the mouths of mice or lions. There's a cross motif on almost every page. Um, Angels bearing the stigmata, pointing at Christ. There are a lot of intricate and really often humorous decorations that make it really cool to look at. You should definitely go online and find a bunch of pictures. I know. I feel like this is a a follow-along podcast. You can pull up images (laughs) and reference them. Maybe not when you're driving, if you're a commuter listener. (laughs) So going down into book specifics, the pages are big, like 10 by 13 inches, and there are 340 folios, 680 pages, and they're written on calf vellum. Uh, probably we're missing about 60 pages, although one page was recovered in the 18th century and slipped back into the book, which I think is so, so awesome. Cool. Uh, the vellum represents about 185 skins of calves. Uh, so you can imagine just the work and effort that would go into creating the parchment. And it's that texture of the parchment that no facsimile can reproduce, even if it's really a a great copy because it's thick and leathery in certain spots and then it's really thin almost to the point of translucence in in others. And going from pages to script, the letters that make up the Gospels, the prefaces, the summaries of the Gospel narratives are written in this insular type of writing that's typical of Scotland, Ireland, and Lindisfarne at the time. And it was essentially a newish type of font, and the variations of it spread throughout Europe by missionaries. But of course, the script doesn't mean anything in the Book of Kells without the illumination. Yeah, it surrounds all of the text. And there are only two pages in that whole long thing, devoid of ornamentation, which I think is so amazing. They don't... Picture book. Yeah, it's a piece of picture book. <laughs> uh, they embellished keywords and key phrases and decorated initials. Their drawings that wrap around the text. It's all perfectly put together, too, like a puzzle, mm-hmm. uh, which is so interesting when you think about multiple people working on one page. There's knot work inspired by Celtic metalworking and uh, stone crosses and people laced through the words. It, you really have to look this up, but people just with their 
legs all folded up in funny Celtic knots and their <laughs> tongues yoga. tied in bows. And it's it's really interesting. And like we've mentioned before, there's imagination and humor in these drawings. It's not just staid religious types of things. The letters seem alive. There are human figures that are fantastically elongated in part and pulling each other's beards. Um, a horse rider is pointing an important part of the text with his toe. That's one of my favorite parts. It's like, look at this. I'm kicking towards it. <laughs> There's an inebriated illustrated man who's sinking against the edge of the page. And there are tons of animals, too. Lizards and cats and lions, moths, otters, fish, mice, hens, lizards, hounds. And it's funny, too. Some of the animals, obviously, the monks wouldn't have seen these, these um, you know, monks on Iona, Kells, wherever they are, um, never would have seen a lion, for example. And they must have known kind of how a lion's body was shaped and that it had a mane, but consequently they end up looking like dogs <laughs> with these big funny whiskers. Uh, but the animals are used, too, to indicate things, corrections and additions and a turn in the path, which is kind of a change in the direction of the text. So they, they have roles. And there is feature art as well, complex scenes that take up whole pages, like the arrest of Christ, uh, the temptation of Christ, virgin and child, St. Matthew, St. John, but perhaps the most famous is the Cairo. And that gets us to the illuminators, the people who illustrated the book. Uh, the historian Francoise Henry thinks that there are three principal artists. One is the goldsmith, and he's probably the most famous here. Of course, we don't know who these people really are and what their names would have been. Um, but the goldsmith is considered the great draftsman, and he didn't draw foliage, but he really liked yellow and blue, and he probably illustrated that famous Cairo page and earned his nickname. And if you've ever seen the Cairo, this will make sense too. Um, he earned his nickname because he was really good at creating the effect of gold filigree on vellum with this yellow color, which was actually arsenic-based, so... We can only guess about the goldsmith's health later in life, but uh, really impressive work. And then we've got the portrait painter who created images of Christ, the four evangelists, and maybe the symbol page in the St. Matthew Gospel. And the third is the illustrator who really liked bright colors and may have been responsible for the temptation of Christ, the arrest of Christ, and the virgin and child images. The virgin and child, I'd say, is one of the most striking images in the book, too. Um, but it's also believed that there were four scribes, and they don't get names that are quite as good as the <laughs> as the illuminators here, but they're called just A, B, C, and D. And because their hands are so similar, I mean, it, it's hard for an untrained eye like my own to even Impossible tell them apart. <laughs> um, but they were probably trained together and worked together in the same scriptorium. Uh, hand A uses this typical brown gall ink. Hand B uses black ink, which I had no idea. It was a novelty at the time and probably signified some kind of Mediterranean contact. It's weird to think that black ink wouldn't be your standard. And Hand C is responsible for lots of the book, according to scholars. And Hand D had a large, confident script that's a little easier to tell. Which you would have to have some confidence, too, to to write this stuff, you had to write quickly on vellum uh, to keep a nice flow to this script. And we've talked about how open and clear this kind of writing is. If you if you understood Latin, you'd probably be able to read it. Uh, it's not 
that cramped, difficult style of writing that you would maybe expect from the period. And contemporary calligraphers have messed around with this style of writing and figured out that a page of script without the decorations, you know, just the writing, might have taken only a few hours. The decoration, of course, would have taken a lot longer. Yeah. But it's interesting to think of how fast you could make a book of cows. But I still think of writing for a few hours <laughs> on one page, how if you made a mistake, <laughs> it would just be, I, I think I would be devastated. I would not be a good scribe. But there aren't many corrections, or at least there aren't many corrections that are are noted. And instead of just scribbling something out, or like what I would probably do, try to turn it into the right letter, <laughs> they they just superscript the new letter above the incorrect one and mark out the old one with a dot in the center, which consequently makes it look pretty good. So how did they make this book if, you know, there aren't a ton of corrections and everything? How did it work? We'll talk a little bit about the actual writing process. Scribes used quills from feathers of swans or geese, and you can actually get a pretty good idea of what the scribe at work might look like um, when you see the image of John the Evangelist, who's depicted with his quill hard at work on the gospel. And the makers of the book like to remind their readers what they were reading, and I, I would think remind them of uh, of the monk's own role in making it. Meta. Yeah, because, <laughs> I mean, after all, copying um, copying the Bible like this is an act of devotion in itself. And so books appear in the manuscript more than 30 times. Uh, angels hold them, evangelists, Jesus, um, just sort of reminding people of that whole larger connection. The painting was done with fine brushes, probably made from the fur of the pine marten, which is a weaselly type of animal. And it's kind of cute, too. It is super cute. We Google imaged <laughs> it. Lapis lazuli was the most expensive pigment used. The only known source for it in the ninth century was one mine in the Badakhshan area of Afghanistan. So consequently, it cost a fortune. Yeah, traders could charge whatever they wanted for it. And other imported pigments from the Mediterranean uh, include the maroon colors and purple. And there's um, white and red are often derived from white lead or red lead, another kind of toxic pigment to be working with. Red could also come from a pregnant Mediterranean insect, the Kermacoccus vermilio. Which I just wonder how people discover stuff like this. If you step on a bug and you notice some nice red-looking ink come out of it. You don't have to go through that much trouble at the office. You could get your green from a verdigris, a copper acetate, but this didn't do as well um, over time since it corrodes the vellum when it's damp. Because I think sometimes you have to mix it with vinegar. Yeah, I think it might have to be prepared with vinegar. Um, but the artists also used tools. They had rulers and set squares and compasses. Sometimes you can even see the very, very faint trace lines from the compasses. And they used templates. And But some of the illuminations are so small, and there are these intense geometric designs that have lines that are less than half a millimeter apart. You wonder how they did this, even with tools. How is it possible? Well, that's why we have Cornell, because Cornell paleontologist John Sisney believes, according to Cornell News, that the Celtic monks, and this is a quote from him, trained their eyes to cross above the plane of the manuscript so they could visually superimpose side-by-side elements of a replicated pattern and thereby create 3D images that magnify differences between the patterns up to 30 times. 
So basically it let them replicate designs across a page and then also gives them vision that's capable of this sub-millimeter precision before you have something like microscopes. It, I think this is so crazy if you cross your eyes and practice enough. <laughs> We've been crossing our eyes at each other all day, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> no, I have not gotten this amazing vision yet. Um, but he, he called this free fusion stereo comparison. And it's not something that the Celtic monks would have shared freely because it kind of gave them a leg up in the illumination world. Um, but you can tell because of some clues. One thing is that the element spacing is usually about the distance between an average person's pupils. They probably made the templates by drawing a design repeatedly, cutting out errors as they as they kept on doing it until they finally have one that's ready. And you can tell this too because sometimes you'll see a minor mistake that's repeated throughout the pattern, throughout the rows and columns, suggesting that you know, they did work from a template. Since such precision and time can't be replicated today, it's good that we have some really nice copies. Facsimiles made in the 80s involved the invention of this own special camera, since the book couldn't leave Trinity, couldn't be unbound, and couldn't be touched by anyone or anything. Yeah, they had to invent this camera that had a light suction to press down the pages so that they were flat enough to photograph. And this copying, this facsimile, can recreate or recapture every wash of paint and every little beetle hole, basically everything except the texture of the vellum. That's so fantastic. And it's so fantastic that Kells still wants the original of this book. The city made a push for one of the manuscripts to return to them in 2000 and take up a spot in a heritage exhibit that they'd set up. Um, but the Heritage Center had to close because of issues with a leaky roof. So the city's making another push for a manuscript in the wake of The Secret of Kells, an animated film which was nominated for an Oscar and, of course, appropriately hand-drawn, which Sarah and I really hadn't heard of before, but we really want to see it. We also want our own book of Kells. But that brings us today to our listener mail. So keeping with our story about the book of Kells and about great Irish folk tales and fairy tales. We have a correction or a comment from Allison about our episode on the real Bluebeard. And she wanted to mention that it was Beauty and the Beast was not written by Charles Perrault, but actually Madame de Villeneuve. Um, and yeah, we wanted to make that clear in case it wasn't. We, we didn't actually think that Charles Perrault wrote the book. Right. We just, but we would like to clarify in case that wasn't clear to everyone else here. But Allison, it, it is, I agree with you, the Beauty and the Beast history is a really fun one. And we're really into fairy tales in general. So if there's something you'd like to hear about specifically, please email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We'd also like to remind you that we have a Twitter and you can follow us and learn about all the interesting stuff we're learning about at Mist in History. And you should check out our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 